Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have our third and final interview with Rush's drummer, Neil Peart. At the time of this interview in 1994, Peart was 42 years old and was promoting Rush's album Counterparts and their concert in Indianapolis. In the interview, Peart talks about how Rush progressed over its 18 albums, why he agrees with Frank Zappa that love songs are destructive, and what characteristic he has that has enabled him to be successful. As always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Our, our, our division of labor system, you know, the other guys deal with radio and, and uh, TV and meet and greets and I talk to the real people. Well, I'm, uh, <laughs> and believe me, the real people are happy for that. <laughs> well, let me start by asking you a question you ask on the album. What kind of difference can one person make? I, I mean, obviously, I believe that one person can make a difference in, uh, in role models. And actually, that line reflects really nicely on a song that it's not even in, Nobody's Hero Idea. You know, the people I, I held up in that song that were examples and role models to me. For instance, the first gay person I ever knew who set such a great example of what gay people can be and prevented me from ever becoming homophobic or from having some kind of weird idea, you know, about what homosexuals were about or in the second verse of Nobody's Hero 2 of one person taken away from a family and the gap that that leaves and the people around them and how it affects their outlook on humanity. You know, my question about those people was how can they ever think human nature is good? Again, they've lost their daughter in an act of mindless brutality. So uh, those kind of questions do have to do with, of course, what difference one person can make. And the question of heroism, too, our Western idea of heroism is something I've thought about a lot over the last few years and thinking about what is it, first of all, and B, you know, <laughs> question B, is it good? And I decided, no, it's not good. It's, a, it's not a role model at all. People are holding up these deities of perfection that they can't possibly measure themselves against or aspire to. So a true role model to me can be someone in the nobody's hero sense, you know, a few school teachers that I had, a few musicians that I worked with in early years that set examples for me that I continue to live by, you know, even though they weren't Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson, you know. <laughs> so those were the examples I was trying to hold up that what America and the Western world needs is not these kind of semi-deified heroes at all. We just need good examples in our neighborhoods when we grow up really makes much more difference. That's a good point. I guess it really comes to light now if you think about this Nancy Kerrigan stuff. People are being held to impossible standards. Yeah, you know? and that's what it is. But but con contradictory ones. I mean, in certain walks of life, you can get away with some things, and yet people like politicians are supposed to be purer than Caesar's wife. And yet, you know, um, rock musicians, it's okay for them to be um, junkies and drunks and woman beaters and everything, but they mustn't sell out to the corporation, you know. <laughs> contradictory and so strange in the morality of athletes too again what they can get away with and what they can't get away with are are really strange constructs to me and, and in different walks of life you know the different standards that, that people are held to and, and that is how it is you know and like you say Nancy Kerrigan that whole thing is another amazing example and the amount of print that it's taken up when personally I'd, mu I'd much rather read about Aldrich Ames and, and the mole and the CIA and the continuing existence of the KGB and what that means in the world I've been really feeling robbed the last few days in the newspaper because what's really important, what's, what's really going on is get bumped away by the Lorena Bobbitts and all that bullshit, you know. <laughs> it's annoying. But these people, they made a difference. One person makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. It 
it seems to me that while most adults kind of retreat and stop questioning things in their life, you, you seem to go in the opposite direction. I mean, you're, you're, each album continues to question and, and expand your thoughts more uh-huh. and more. Yeah, I think it's a luxury of the job, honestly. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day who's a writer, and I was saying, you know, we're lucky to be in this position where I think it was John Steinbeck said once the hardest thing for a writer's wife to learn is that when he's looking out the window, he's working. You know, <laughs> uh, you know those, those kind of things that you were actually paid to sit around and think about stuff. And I find that really refreshing. Not only does it reinforce my sense of the value of the job, but also my right to sit around and re-examine things of, of my own preconceptions, too, sometimes, that each one is a progression of learning and things that I'm talking about in counterparts I certainly didn't know about 10 years ago or think about 10 years ago. And these dualities of race and gender and so on have been hard-won insights for me. Years of traveling around Africa, for instance, have helped me to understand that. And years of trying to understand men and women and how they behave have led me to certain insights. And, and other people's work, of course, that I've studied and, and uh, learned from contributes to that. So, yeah, the question's never closed for me in that sense. And I am surprised by the kind of people you mentioned people I grew up with, certainly, who at a certain point just stop asking and whether they accept a system of religion or a system of political thought or even just no system, you know, they just uh, they just decide that their lives are too full for that. And that's fair enough, too. And that's what I say that those of us, like yourself, too, really, who are in a position where you are, you know, your job is to investigate things and, and reach conclusions that maybe other people haven't got the time for. I think of people like you or, or um, humorists to as indicators you know i i really uh, value the, the world of humor that points out things that are worth laughing about in the, in the late 80s like i thought spy magazine was such a valuable service because it it was an indicator of things that were worth laughing about or uh, perhaps being a little cynical about the thing that i guess you get to do that other people don't is you, you can sort of go right to the source or at least spend more time thinking about it whereas other people are looking toward maybe not role models but other people to tell them what to think because they seem to be too busy to, to worry about things like that. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, sometimes that is fair enough, and, and I do appreciate that luxury and, and, and also take the responsibility of it seriously, you know, that anything that I do dare to come out and say or state is pretty carefully researched, and, and you know, it's my very best uh, effort at putting some kind of hard-won knowledge into imagery in a rock and roll format, if you like. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't deny the luxury of it, but at the same time, it is a professional obligation in, in another sense that you are supposed to you know think hard about these things before you just toss up some piece of rock lyric but at the same time I I, uh, I do appreciate that the idea that they are timely and again to make the analogy with journalism that uh, you're reflecting the times in which you live and someday somebody might go back to your newspaper and look up a column for historical reasons but it, its relevance really ceases on the day and, and uh, rock music to me is made to have the same kind of timeliness and thus built-in obsolescence where eventually it becomes irrelevant and that's why the constant nostalgia for 60s music or 50s music or 70s disco or whatever is, is a blind alley you know it's trying to recapture another time and it's nostalgia it's just as silly as trying to bring back dixieland or the roaring 20s or the gay 90s it's gone so people don't want to let it go unfortunately no well, sometimes um, it represents the best period of their own lives or there's also the a concept I've been reading a bit about lately of nostalgia for times when you didn't even live, you know? Right. <laughs> and I felt that too, you know, if I'm in Paris, I feel the Paris of the 20s is a strong a sense of nostalgia. I wish it were there, you know, and I regret the fact that it's all gone. And if I'm in London, I can't help but think of Dickensian time and traveling around the United States, 
I can't help thinking of, uh, you know, the, of the progress of this century in the small towns and cities of America. The 50s in New York City, for instance, is another time that I didn't live in, but I feel a kind of nostalgia for it. So it's a complicated thing. You're always asking people to think, and how do, how do, how do people react to you yeah. asking? Um, that's an acquired skill, too. I think I've learned better over the years to invite people to. Oh, okay. and, uh, and, you know, that's something actually Getty pointed out to me when I was trying to do Manhattan Project. And here I am trying to write the history of the nuclear age, basically capture the context of the times in which the atomic bomb was born and, you know, how it changed the world. But the true good intentions of the people who did it, you know, that it wasn't the cartoon idea of these evil scientists trying to create the ultimate bad weapon. They were simply trying to save their country and do the right thing. But uh, in the process of that, of course, it's very hard to tell, again, putting into the context of a rock song to try to write a historical treatise. And it was Getty that gave me the idea in that song of in every verse to make it an invitation. Imagine a time, you know, imagine a man inviting the listener into this you know, um, scenario that I was trying to present. So I've always kept that idea in mind that if I am presenting, a, you know, a conceptual idea or some abstraction, that I'll try to make it an invitation and to make it warm, too. I had a real problem in Roll the Bones, our previous record, because I was dealing with the idea of chance, and I was saying of, and uh, putting forth the idea that chance has an enormous impact on our lives, just in the sense of contingency, but it's a repellent idea. It's cold, you know, so I had to work really hard to warm it up with imagery and specific human examples and so on, and to make it not seem hopeless, to make it, the, yes, the, there are these odds, but we can manipulate the odds and we can roll the dice over again. And with this album, too, dealing with abstractions like heroism, I didn't want it to be just a concept, so I had to find a way to warm it up, and I used um, little biographical vignettes of, of people on the other side of the abstraction to uh, to make that example, or in the song Everyday Glory, you know, I talked about a, an abusive household and a dysfunctional family, but tried to emphasize the fact that you could transcend that, and people I know that have grown up with wretched childhoods have transcended it sometimes, and, and the, the whole gist of that song Everyday Glory, that, you know, if things are dark, well, we're the ones who have to shine, it's, uh, it can still be done, so the element of hope is so important to get in there, and, and the warmth, the human element in uh, there are certain songs where I'm talking about relationships, but they're not by any stretch autobiographical. I just, again, had a concept to deal with in what love was and how people stay together. So I invented characters to dramatize my scene, you know, and Cold Fire is an example of that, and, and The Speed of Love. Previous records, I've done that on songs like Ghost of a Chance. Oh, on the song Presto itself with an imaginary couple having a disagreement. The other thing I learned, I guess, from Paul Simon, the idea of putting a conversation in a song, he said, she said, idea I thought was a, a very cool way for me to present opposing viewpoints. And in Cold Fire, I wanted to set it up that, uh, you know, again, this is a real-life love story, and, and there are two, of the two characters, the woman is the smart one. So it was a delicate bit of, of, uh, of tradecraft, you know, of, of just the craft that it took to uh, create these characters and then set up the balance of their relationships so that um, it's not obvious, I don't think, to the listener that the woman is the smart one and the guy's asking dumb questions, but the conclusions become obvious that I'll, I'll be around if you don't push me down too far. To me, you know, is, is a realistic evaluation of what keeps people together is as long as you live up to each other's expectations and you are still the same person that, you know, they plighted their trust to or whatever, you will maintain their love. And I, I thought that was more realistic than the idea that love is made in the stars and will last forever and it's a moment of bliss 
Frank Zappa did an interview shortly before his death, and he was someone asked him, you know, you never write love songs, Frank. And he said, well, no, not only are love songs stupid, but they're destructive, and they have probably destroyed more relationships over the past few generations than anything else because it creates this unreal expectation of what a relationship is supposed to be and what Prince Charming and Cinderella are supposed to be like while they live happily ever after, you know, that whole myth. And I agree with him. It, again, it's not only dumb, all those love songs, but they are actively destructive and do cause people to have unreal fantasies of what their lives will be like and to be disappointed, obviously, and disillusioned by them. So, Well, this goes back to what you were saying regarding heroes and nobody's hero. I mean, you yeah. have unrealistic expectations. Again, unrealistic expectations. I mean, I'm, an, I'm a dreamer and an idealist to the max, and obviously I dreamed up what I am. <laughs> you know, my, my life is certainly a dream realized, and I'm not denying that by any means, but I'm saying that it was um, it was achieved by small increments. I didn't pick up a pair of drumsticks and say, I'm going to play Madison Square Garden. You know, my dream was playing at the local church hall, and then once I played there, my dream was playing at the high school, and then once I played there, you know, the local dance hall and so on. You know, realistic goals, again, one by one, and same as a musician, you know, to attain levels of skill. Again, I didn't say on the first day, I'm going to be better than Buddy Rich. I thought I'm going to be better than Tommy Jones down the street. That was my, that was the limit of my goal, and it was, and so it should be. And each of those goals led to another one. And again, for, in any refutation, I just, I can cite my own life as, as an example that yes, I had this dream, and yes, I actualized this dream, but I didn't do it by pretending to be a semi-deity or comparing myself with one either. It was just a series of reachable goals one at a time. Beyond ability, do you think that there's something, some sort of characteristic that you have that other successful, famous people have that enables them to get where they are? Oh, ambition is the plus ultra of it. Without ambition, really, nothing happens. So in every case, there's some kind of ambition. Now, what it's driven by varies, but it's driven by insecurity or a need for approval. With a lot of people, certainly in the entertainment world, with some nice quotes around that, uh, it is a need for approval. And for a lot of people, I find they celebrity for them is nourishment. You know, they need to be loved which is exactly the opposite of mine. You know, my, I'm totally self-driven, and and whatever I achieve on stage every night or in writing songs or whatever is measured by me. And, uh, you know, I know when I walk on stage how well I've done compared to how well I should have done, et cetera. And it's a, it's a pretty much internalized ambition. So it, it varies a little bit, but certainly the magic word and the missing word in Cut to the Chase, too, uh, it is the fire that lights itself. The missing word there is ambition, is the fire that lights itself. Um, although I adapted it from a quote, I ran into somewhere a quote that said, genius is the fire that lights itself. And I think it was a Nobel physicist that coined that phrase. And I thought, oh, that's a beautiful little phrase. And then I thought, well, you know, genius is okay. But for me, the word I was on at the time thematically was ambition. I thought, well, ambition is the same way. Whatever your goals are, or even in the smallest way in your hobby, whatever you want to attain, it lights itself. You don't have to say, oh, today I must go and pay stamps in my album, or I must do a 100-mile bike ride, or the private ambitions that people have in their lives have to be self-driven. There's just no way you can force yourself to be ambitious. So the concept of ambition in that song, Cut to the Chase, was the, the underwritten theme of the whole thing, and certainly the motor of the Western world, and certainly not without its dark side, too. As um, you know, Cut to the Chase is about ambition in the same way that big money was about economics, and in both cases I wanted to point out that it does some good stuff and it does some bad stuff. There are no clear good and evil characteristics here that sometimes money is a, a force of good and sometimes it's a force of evil and the same with ambition. So there's a lot of shades of gray around. Well, yeah, sometimes. I mean, the absolutes are difficult. There are 
I do believe in good and bad, but it's more complicated than a day's reflection will, will satisfy. A lot of these songs are investigations, I guess, sometimes of the gray areas, but without denying the black and white realities, too. People want a very simple division. They want liberals or conservatives. Uh -huh. You know, they want that. And That's the other thing, too. And, and there is, I, I don't think there is such a thing. I don't think everybody's 100% anything. Not very often, no. And, and unfortunately, though, one side gets tarred with the bad brush, like the, in the, the whole right-wing world of American politics, I see the good right and the bad right. And <laughs> when I see somebody like Rush Limbaugh, I'm appalled, not only by him, but by the people around him, that this kind of mentality can, can exist to poke fun at such righteous events and people. The one episode of the show I've ever seen, they just poked fun at uh, this black woman was making a beautiful speech about how, okay, it's time for us to, to be more selective in whom we choose. You know, black people up till now have been proud to vote for other black people regardless of their record, you know, regardless of their fitness for office and so on. Someone a few weeks ago, and they had been hosting a radio call-in show where people were calling in and making comments about uh, our new album, I think. And one of them called in and said that Nobody's Hero was really about, <laughs> get this, it was really about, what I was really saying was that it was time for us to stop making heroes of the victims like AIDS victims and homosexuals and victims <laughs> of domestic abuse. And I was saying that these people really aren't anybody's hero and we should stop making anything out of them. And, and that was the point of the song. And, uh, and the commentator at the time said, I think you've got them confused with the other rush. You know, the yeah. rush because it was, and sometimes, you know, these interpretations just, I can't believe what people get out of it. And other, other friends of mine have told me that it's a friend of mine and people, other people knew that, you know, he was friendly with me. So he said, is it true that rush are gay? <laughs> just because I dared to write about a homosexual, you know, and the, the, the lyrics couldn't be clearer that, you know, I went to his parties as the straight minority. And it can't be more clearly stated than the way I did, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's ironic because the next question I was going to say, uh, next thing I was going to say was there. There's such an air of tolerance in your lyrics, mm. <laughs> you know, to be tolerant of other people. Yeah, well, I was careful in that sense. The song Alien Shore, too. Right. You know, I said to us, you know, we're strangers by a chromosome, but we're we still want to reach out to each other as males and females and culturally. I, you know, I, I made the point in the song too that racially, yes, we're different. But um, my wonderful little play on words that nobody gets is that race is not a competition. Pun on race. You know, I, I just wanted to make it clear that for me kind of the, the clear germ of the counterparts idea was the dictionary definition that it's a duplicate and yet an opposite and that's how we are in these dualities you know we're the same but different and i thought okay that's beautiful and self-evident and among my friends that's an accepted reality but the the chorus line of the song comes back around but that's just us i had to realize that you and, you and me we might agree but but that's just us, you know, we're right-thinking people, and most people aren't, or a lot of people aren't, and they're behaving badly and saying terrible things, and they're obviously not perceiving the same reality we were. So, yes, I wanted to, put, to uh, sort of profess this tolerance and, and express it in words, but at the same time admit the fact that I wasn't being naive, that I, I wasn't trying to put forward a 60s kind of thing of, oh, we're all the same and we should just get along. The key of part of the song had to come back to, okay, well, we think these things, but sadly, that's just us re reaching for the alien shore. Most other people are trying to blow it up. Can you give me a broad brushstroke of what you, who, who you think uh, is in Russia's audience? Uh, that's pretty difficult, really. Just to, over the passage of years, and there's been a constant recycling of our audiences. Some people, uh, as you said earlier, um, they lose interest in uh, music and, you know, they get attached to job and mortgage and family and so on. And, and you know, fair enough, whatever makes you happy is not a problem. But uh, they stop, of course, coming to rock concerts and, uh, and younger people step over or step into it. So 
Uh, certainly there are a lot of teens in our audience who literally were not born when we first started touring the United States, so that's kind of interesting. But at the same time, we see a lot of people in their 30s and 40s, and sometimes they're with their families. And uh, there was a guy in the second row the other night uh, in one of these shows in Florida wearing a Power Windows t-shirt, so he's obviously a long-time campaigner, and a very dignified, well-taken-care-of-looking guy, and not making a fool of himself, obviously there because he wanted to be and totally enjoying the whole thing. So it was kind of inspiring to us. Here's an adult, and one thing we've always tried to do, certainly, is to speak to our peers who talk about our development of ideas as they've changed and our music as it's changed, and as far as we're concerned, we're addressing equals, not trying to talk down to our audience or be pretentious over their heads or anything like that. We're talking to other people like us, again, like the point of Alien Shore, you know, you and me, we might agree, but that's just us, and as far as we're concerned, the people we're writing to are, are people like us, so uh, we are happy to see people that have grown up with us, and more and more I get mail from people who are out in the world themselves now doing interesting and, uh, and worthwhile things, but Rush is still part of their lives, you know, in the sense that I've always loved, a quote one of my friends said that we've been the soundtrack of his life, and to me that's like the ultimate compliment, that Rush could stay relevant to somebody's life through their teens, their 20s, and into their adulthood is, is great. I mean, obviously the reflection of our lives through that same time period, but to be able to maintain contact with someone else's life through that, I think is, um, well, if it's not a miracle, it's at least a, a very wonderful thing. So you think your audience is smart? I mean, yeah, in, 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 uh, yeah, I think they're as smart as we are, absolutely. Oh, I, never, okay. I never worry about uh, being too complicated or too deep or anything like that. I just take for granted that if, if we can think of this and if it gets us excited, then uh, you know, other people can understand it and, and it might get them excited too. Okay, because I was when I was asking about about who the audience is, I wasn't really thinking age so much as I was thinking of uh, of mental makeup. You know, are they? Yeah, are yeah these that's tough to generalize though, because there are a lot of people there who who don't pay any attention to the lyrics, for instance, and that doesn't bother me because I, you know I I only spend two months every two years as a lyricist, so it is a small <laughs> part of my time, and I I do a good job of it just because I'm doing it. But at the same time, I don't overrate its importance, and I know that it's very possible to like music without paying attention to the words. So that's fair enough. So there are a lot of people that are just there to shake their heads around and rattle their brains, and, and that's fine too. And they're the air drummers and air guitarists who are there from a musical standpoint, and that's fine too. So even intellectually, it's it's pretty hard to draw broad strokes. You know, we've noticed that when we do those um, um, radio uh, online talk show, what's that called? Rockline? Rockline. Uh, several times when we've done that, for instance, the questions do range from intelligent and provocative to downright insultingly dumb. So, you know, you can't generalize. It's impossible. You've got a broad cross-section of almost a million people. I have to think, I ask myself these, these existential questions on stage sometimes when I'm sitting there thinking, first of all, why am I here? And why is the whole point of my life to play well in Fresno tonight, you know? <laughs> or whatever, but it is, you know, recognizing the fact that it is so that I judge my whole existence. My whole existence is focused on being on stage at Fresno and playing well. And then wherever we are, I look out at the audience and say, okay, here we are in Phoenix, or here we are in Atlanta, or whatever, at these 10,000 Atlantites, or Nashvilleites, or, you know, Cincinnati, or Indianapolis, or whatever. I look, I look out at these people sometimes and think, well, why are they here? What are they getting out of this? You know, a word I've been thinking of lately a lot with regard to art and entertainment is nourishing. What I can get out of a good movie or a good novel or something is I feel nourished by it. And so I start thinking about well, what, what is it about this event of a rock concert, you know, is nourishing to them and on what level. So I ask myself those questions too, but there really are no easy generalities. It's just an interesting subject. Since it's 20 years and 19 records, I wondered if you could, could go through the records really quickly and just, I mean, I'll give you the titles if you want them in chronological order and just a sentence or two about what you think about them these days. Yeah, it's not really necessary. I can go in broader strokes than that okay. really is a, 
linear upward climb as far as I'm concerned in learning the craft. And, you know, first learning how to play our instruments was the first four records. <laughs> really, you know, we were concentrated truly on learning to play and the songs were vehicles, you know, right up really through the first six albums. So they, they were vehicles to experiment on, learn how to play, handle time signatures and, and different sorts of musical changes technically. And then after that, we got interested more in songwriting from, say, Permanent Waves on. Uh, that became of interest to us and we concentrated a lot on that and the musicianship then became into the service of the song which was a step and then uh, later in that in the 80s uh, arrangements became paramount to us so that would start uh, with signals which from well a little later actually i would say with working with peter collins on uh, power windows and hold your fire uh, he was a really important catalyst to us uh, in terms of arrangement and what could be done and what was you know interesting experimentally with trying different textures and different approaches to rhythmic um, arrangements of songs so, so that was the third stage of our postgraduate work if you like <laughs> and from then till now I think we've been doing trying to do all at once you know the records that we've made since that time have been trying with varying degrees of success to juggle all those things at once but our records are made so intuitively that um, they're bound to be uneven you know there's no way that I think we will ever create a masterpiece because we are so willing to experiment and give some new direction the benefit of the doubt and put it on the record regardless but there's just not going to be a record where every song is a winner I don't think it's it's not in our nature but and that's as it should be I'm glad it's that way I could go through maybe the last 20 years and pick out one album's worth of songs that I think are truly you know fine pieces of work but uh, at the same time I recognize that a lot of times our experiments end up as blind alleys and other experiments lead us on to good things so you just got to do them it's nice that people stick with you through it. exactly yeah without without fans of course we couldn't have that luxury of it's interesting to me that you say that the first four or five records were, were trying to learn how to play I mean that's just it's incredible to even think that uh, yeah, I mean obviously you had some some abilities there or, or you wouldn't have gotten a contract in the oh, first of course, place, yeah. but, but there was there was a rawness inherent there but yeah. I know for me I don't I don't think I'd started to master playing the drums until after 25 years frankly so I don't underestimate what it takes to do that job well and it's only in the last few years I've started to feel a confidence of being able to handle you know the scope of, of um, playing live for instance which is the ultimate test and being able to control all the tiny little increments of smoothness and tempo and everything that it requires to do it it's not easily won Rush hasn't really done this so much but but it seems like uh, that the general movement in production is toward this big drum sound where, where the drums are really in the in the forefront not just dance music but no no I know it's true in rock too but what it requires of the drummer is to leave out all the small notes because of course they get lost if the, if the snare drum is a giant sound and the bass drum is a giant sound then if small notes are just going to be a muddy blur and that's why I won't go that way because I love small notes and I won't stop playing them so uh, whenever I'm dealing with an engineer who wants to go that way I say well you know you can have as much latitude as you want but don't start losing lose what I'm playing <laughs> so uh, that's an element of it too in our work that we can't go too much in the noise area because we lose the subtleties and we are wed to the subtleties absolutely so um, that's one thing with uh, in counterparts we found we wanted to make it a relatively raw noisy record but at the same time we weren't willing to compromise our idea of a good sounding record high fidelity and also the nuances of what we play you know on our instruments was not to be lost in some welterous thunder of sound you know so there are certain parameters there that we just won't compromise regardless of trend or whatever i'm sorry to have to cut you off mark but i've got to call your colleague in cincinnati and i don't want to be late can i ask 
one other thing sure. real quick. If, um, if, if music were, this is for another story I'm working on, if music were like the stock market and you could invest in some young up-and-coming uh, act, uh, who, who would you pick? Uh, I wonder how young and up-and-coming... Um, it's entirely up to you. People are, no, like, well, for instance, the, uh, the two big forces out of Seattle, I definitely rate highly being Pearl Jam and uh, Soundgarden. Yeah. It's a real source of talent. We have an opening act out with us now, Candlebox, that uh, I think are very good and have a lot of promise for the future. Uh, on the hip-hop world, I think us three are uh, a real, I think the, the wedding of jazz and hip-hop is born in heaven, and I think there's a lot of possibility to be done there. And um, there's another group I like uh, out of uh, Pennsylvania. I think they just have the second record coming out pretty soon called Live. Don't I know. thought their first record was, uh, again, a really promising debut. Great songwriting, great musicianship, and um, nice arrangements, and, you know, everything that you're supposed to do, good lyrics. So I really have uh, hopes for them, too. Wow. Okay. It said that uh, Primus is supposed to open for you. Yeah, they will be um, okay. uh, starting on the next run. So I think possibly by the time we hit Indianapolis, That's we'll have them. We have, up till now, we've had Candlebox for most of the tour. Okay. Terrific. I appreciate all okay. your time. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Mike. Take care. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.